Together, we're working at learning about love. And uh, we're really doing our very best to see the truth about love. And we're doing that because we want to grow. Uh, we, we really believe that each and every one of us has some growing to do. And we don't think there's a better way to try and grow than in the way that comes when you focus on love. And here's why. Uh, most of us will know that love is the most important thing. When, when my relationships with the people that I'm close to are going well, then everything's good. But when I'm in conflict and, and my relationships with the people that are nearest to me are broken and they're not working well, then I'm not okay. Uh, the most successful person in the world can have everything going for them, but if love is not working, they have nothing. Uh, where on the other hand, you can have someone who loses everything, but as long as they still have love, they're absolutely fine. Have you seen this? Uh, I tell you that in my experience as a pastor in the years behind me, I've seen nothing more clearly than the truth that well-being corresponds directly to how love is functioning in a person's life. Uh, everything can be from the outside looking great, but when there's no love in here, that person is empty and alone and lost. And the exact opposite is also true. And so it seems so plain to me uh, that it is, it is just right for us to focus on love because love is the most important thing. And what I'm aiming for today and in the weeks ahead is helping each and every one of you thrive and that's what I want. I want you to understand that. If, if I'm a, the pastor that you identify with, this is your church. This is what your pastor wants for you. If you're a visitor and you're thinking, what is this place about? It's what I want for you. It's that you should thrive by growing to receive and give love better. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that will help any and every person who grows in that way. And I'll tell you what, it's not just because it's my idea. The truth about Jesus is that he wanted to build a community of people who first and foremost loved each other well. Have you heard this saying? They will know that we are his followers by our love. And what God wants is for our love to shine the kind of light that brings others close to him because God wants everyone to be close to him. And that's why we're focusing on love. Uh, when we come to Jesus, what we see is simple. And this is going to be our message for today. Jesus taught that love is the most important thing and that God loves you and that what God wants is for you to love him in return and that way you can pass his love on to others. Now, this is critical. This is for this morning. And the only way to do that is when you receive his love first for you. And that's why this morning we're focusing on the truth about loving yourself. Uh, do you know that not everyone has a very good feeling about themselves. Uh, some, for some people, it's very hard to love themselves. Others of you right now are saying, oh no, I, I'm an expert in this. I'm doing really, really well. And we're really thankful for you. We're <laughs> now we, ne we need you, we do. Uh, Jesus needs a community of people who are able to love themselves in the right way. Many of us, oh, this is the place where we need to grow. And so this morning, we're gonna go first please listen again, so that we can receive God's love and love God back and pass his love on to others. We're gonna first start with loving ourselves in the right way. And, and we're gonna begin 
at the very beginning because that's the very best place to start. Anybody? I'm going to start singing if you don't tell me what that's from. Thank you. All right, Sound of Music. I watched that movie this week and I'm not afraid to admit it. I loved it. Jesus was teaching in the temple at Jerusalem. By God's design, this was the most important place. It's where God was uh, promised to dwell for his people. There in the temple were the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, all of the most important theological minds were gathered together in one place and Jesus went there with them to have a conversation about the most important things, about God. Each and every one of these experts asked Jesus their questions and he responded one after the next in a way that was simply astounding. His wisdom was unmatched. No one had seen anything like it. It's recorded in Mark 11 and following this conversation between Jesus and these bright minds. At the end of the conversation, there's one who is particularly impressed with everything that Jesus has said, a scribe. And so he adds to the list of questions his own. And I want you to see the question he asks. This is recorded in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. He says to Jesus, which commandment is first of all. The scribes were a group of men who were professionals in understanding the Torah. The instruction, the guidance, the way that came from God himself for his people so that their lives would be what their lives were meant to be. Haven't you ever felt that your life isn't what it was meant to be? The scribes were experts in listening to God and then trying their very best to help others see which way should we go. They had listened to the Torah and found 613 commandments that were binding upon men and women. 365 were prohibitions and the rest were uh, positive commandments. Do the math, 248. <laughs> and this man who gave his life to understanding this was so impressed by Jesus, he wanted to know what would this man say is the first of all of them. And so he asks, what's the one that makes them all hold together? Is there one? If there was one that not was better, but, but more comprehensive than the rest, what is it, he asks Jesus. And Jesus' response for him is for us too. Look at what Jesus said in verse 29. Jesus answered, the first is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You see the word love there, don't you? This answer from Jesus comes from the Torah. It comes from Deuteronomy, a passage that would have been known by all of those listeners. It was called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. And it was so formative for God's people because well, their conviction was the most important thing for you to hear is that God wants your love. Did you hear that? That's the most important thing. God wants your love. And so Jesus begins his answer like that. Remember, this man asked, what's the most important? Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 31. He says, the second is this. Now, if you were, if you were wanting a very careful answer, you would say, wait, I only asked for one. Right? But Jesus says the second, and there's a reason. It's not because Jesus feels like he needs to keep going beyond the most important, but it's because there is a second commandment which always and every single time comes after that first one. 
They're inextricably connected. You can never have the first without the second. And so Jesus goes on to say, the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That also comes from the Torah, from Leviticus 19.8. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus tells him in front of everyone, the most important thing is love. That's the most important thing. It makes everything hold together. And this Second, which is really just another part of the first, love your neighbor, is inextricably connected to love of God so that one of Jesus' followers later on would say, if you can't love your neighbor who you do see, you can't love God who you do not see. Have some of you heard that before? If you're thinking about the person who lives in the house next door to you and now you think you're really in trouble (laughs) because they're awful, that's not exactly (laughs) what Jesus means. Your neighbor is the person who's close to you. And it was John who said that. The most important thing is for you to love God. And the way you can do that is by love the people around you. Now, if we pause for just a moment on Jesus' second saying, we see in it that there's a condition that's put upon the love that we're meant to give to others that should cause us to pause. You see it there in those two words? Love your neighbor as yourself. There's an assumption going on here in Jesus' teaching, isn't there? Do you see it? Uh, the assumption is that you actually love yourself. Or, or... If you do love yourself, you do so in a way that Jesus would want you to love others in that same way. And both of those are often not the case, wouldn't you say? Uh, You know this, that all around us are people who have a really hard time loving themselves. Some of you are fathers of daughters who don't like who they are. Uh, Some of you uh, are, are moms of sons who feel that they're not brave enough or strong enough They're not courageous enough. They don't measure up and so they hate who they are. Uh, Some of you have girls who look in the mirror and they, they say, I'm not desirable enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not accomplished enough. I am not enough. And so they go off and they don't love who they are. Do some of you know that? Uh, Some of you young people, as I'm speaking, that's you. Not everyone, but some of you. Um, Let me tell you this. It doesn't always change when you grow up. Adults, can we agree? Uh, so the young people need to hear more from you here that this is true for us adults, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. Uh, we just have a more sophisticated way of looking at ourselves and finding reasons not to like what we see, right? Yeah. I didn't achieve enough. I don't have a job that I'm proud enough of. I haven't accomplished everything that people in my place in life are supposed to accomplish. I have all kinds of ways of looking down. Listen, again, it's not everyone, but can I tell you this? That now it's been over two decades that I've been preparing couples for marriage. I've done many, many weddings. And you know what I've seen over and over again is people have a really hard time loving who they are. I do this exercise with couples. I say, hey, let's get at the heart of conflict in your relationship. I want each of you to make a list. Make a list first of the three things about me that make it hard for me to be loved. I want you to start with that. Three things that make it hard to love you. And and then beside that, how about three things that make it easy to love you? And let's use these to get into the discussion. Which list do you think is easier for people to do? Yeah, that that was a pretty weak answer. I'll just say, I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it. Every single couple that I have ever worked with has a far easier time naming the things about them individually that make it hard for them to be loved. Every single time. 
I've never once worked with a couple that is very quick to say, well, here are the things about me that make me lovable. People have a hard time with that list. Sometimes they can't even name one. And every time they have a hard time limiting the list of things that are difficult about them to three. Because when people are real with themselves, that's what they see. It's very hard for many of us to love ourselves. Now, if you are a person who is here this morning thinking, well, I, it's not my struggle at all. I love who I am. We are so happy for you. <laughs> we are, we need you. We need you. We do. God's community needs you. But what is true of every single one of us is that we live in social environments that teach us to measure our value and our worth according to scales that are performance-based. Every one of us, every, you started out as a child in a family that taught you this because your parents were not bad. They wanted to, to, to show you that you were doing good. And when you walked, they said, oh, you're so wonderful. And when you got a good grade, they said, good for you. And you started to internalize it and say, well, my value before mom and dad based is based on doing a good job. And then as a little kid, you made a little scorecard and you put it in your brain and before long, it descended into your heart. And you carry that into school and man, school did a great job at reinforcing that message, right? And your friends did it. And then you, you, your closest friendship groups, they do it for you. And then if you get married or you're close to someone romantically, oh, the scorecard just gets reinforced. You go off to work and there's a new version of it at your office or wherever you work. And you might think, well, is it just corporations? No, it happens in the church too. I did a great sermon this morning. I am more valuable. I take it out of my, good job. I feel really awkward about that illustration or when I tried to ask, I said something funny, nobody laughed, I'm worse. <laughs> I, I've done it already today. It, after the first service, there were three people who told me that I had a good sweater on. I was like, good sweater, plus one, <laughs> three times. I told this story in the second in the second service, there were a few more people who said it and I thought they were just saying it to humor me until one person said, hey, that's a really cheesy sweater. I just wanted to take you down a notch, <laughs> minus one. <laughs> we all do it everywhere. And listen, please listen now. I think anyone will tell you that it's a bad practice. Forget about what they think about faith. Anyone will tell you, this is a dangerous practice. Although some people might tell you, no, 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 the right thing to do is find all the things you're good at and keep telling yourself those things that you're good. But you know, that doesn't work either. It is not true that the person who looks at themselves and says, I just don't love me is the only one who doesn't love me. There are plenty of people who have the highest possible marks in whatever metric they live in and you listen to them long enough and what will happen is they'll let it out. I've always wondered what happens if I don't score high, then what? What Jesus wants is for you to love God. It's the most important thing. The only way you love God is when you receive his love for you and then pass it on to your neighbor. It's that simple. A neighbor being the person that's near to you. And I know it is really hard to love some of the people that are near to you. I know it. You're not gonna get very far unless you start in the first place, which is to receive God's love for you. And I know it's hard for you to love you too. When Jesus taught, he was constantly teaching people who had the wrong way of measuring their value, constantly. He, he always was attentive to who he was speaking to. And he was attentive because he wanted his words to matter, to go to their hearts, to do something for them. And over and over again, if you pay attention to his teaching and you ask, what's going on for the people that he's speaking to? What you'll find is he's confronting groups of people who are using the wrong scorecards to measure their value before each other, 
before their own eyes and certainly before the eyes of God. In Luke chapter 15, there is included one of my all-time favorite stories in the New Testament. Before Jesus tells that story, the gospel writer tells us who Jesus is speaking to so we can hear it in the right way. Luke 15 verses one and two say this. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. This is one group who is coming to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is a second group that's coming close to listen to Jesus. And they're upset about the way Jesus is regarding the first group and for a reason, because Jesus is not respecting the scorecards that they've all agreed upon. So let me tell you, the scorecard is simple. In Jesus' audience, the better you do at following Jesus' law, the higher you score. The more worthy you are of, of regard from others and yourself, the more worthy you are of love. Those 613, they lived in the minds and hearts of everyone there. The tax collectors and sinners, they were the men and women who scored very low and they knew it. They didn't need anybody to tell them. When they thought of themselves before God, they thought, well, I must be very far from him. I'm not the right kind of person. I've scored low. And in the eyes of the people around them and of course in their own eyes too, they were not worthy of love. But there they were listening. That's one group. On the other side, these Pharisees and scribes, they're mad at Jesus for welcoming the sinners and tax collectors because when you eat with someone around your table, you are saying to them, I accept you. I value you. You matter to me. I love you. Have you ever been around someone's table and you felt that? It's easier to feel that when they serve you good steak, isn't it? <laughs> and there's good conversation and you meet new people and there you are together and you feel Jesus was doing that with people in the wrong group and, and the people in the other group were saying, this is not okay because it runs up against our way of valuing our worth. And so what Jesus did is he told them some stories. Some church people know these stories all too well. And I mean it. I'm not just being, I mean it. They know it too well so that they can't hear it. Try to imagine if you know the stories that Jesus tells that you've never heard them. And if you've never heard this, I'm so glad that you get to hear it this morning. A man had two sons and they worked together, all three of them on the farm that father owned. To make the farm work, as everyone knows, it requires every available hand. And so day after day, they worked together the sons knew that when dad died, they would get the property and then they would have to decide how it would work with them going forward. But they worked with their father day in and day out. One day, the younger son came to dad and he asked him the most offensive thing that any son could ever ask a father in this position. He said, dad, would you be willing to give me my share of the inheritance now? It's hard for us to know what that means as easy as it would be for Jesus' listeners. They would hear that very simply, as a statement from the younger son to the father, you're, you, you mean nothing to me. I, I can't wait for you to die so that I can get what's coming to me and I've decided no more pretense. Can I have it now? In Jesus' story, he's painting a picture of someone who scores very low on the scorecard of moral performance. The father says, after considering it, I suppose I'll give you what you've asked for because the father is that kind of dad. He gives the son his inheritance. He takes it and he leaves the farm behind. He goes far away to a country where he doesn't have anything to do with his father or his brother or all of the responsibilities back there. And he uses his money for one thing and one thing only, to please himself. And he does everything that he possibly can do to feel good. Use your imagination. He's naughty. 
That's, that's, the, that's the right way to put it. He, he squandered his property in dissolute living. He's naughty. He's really super naughty. He's as bad as anyone could be. And what happens there as he's pursuing his own selfish needs without any care for anyone else is a famine strikes and he begins to be in need. And so he hires himself out to one of the wealthy landowners of that place. And it's so bad for him that the food that he's giving to the pigs, the slop, he lusts after it. That's the word that Jesus uses. He, he, he longs to fill himself with this slop, but nobody gives him anything. And that's how bad it has become for him, far away from his father and his brother and all his responsibilities. And here, Jesus has depicted a young man who could not sink any lower in the scorecard of value in this community. In this moment where he sits in that miserable place, I would dare say that there are one or two among us who if they were honest about themselves and they look at how they stand before God might think that's what my life is like because of who I've chosen to be. Not everyone, of course. Many of you have made great choices, but some. Can I tell you more than you would guess? And I know this, I know this because because I've sat with men and women who've opened the things that they've hidden. And for some, it has been so astounding. The failure behind them is worse than what this man has done. And so they come into a place like this and they think, maybe God could love others, but surely not me. And, well, do I love myself? No. I hate myself. Others, please listen to this, and this is surprising. The failures and the misery they report sound so small, but still even the voice in them says, you don't measure up. You're not good enough. You're not worthy of love at all. Other people, yes. You heard the preacher say God loves everyone. Go ahead and turn toward everyone else around you and give, give them God's love. But when it comes to you, don't even ask the question. And there you are in the pig's sty. Jesus knew that many of the people listening to his message, the tax collectors and sinners, would feel just like this. And that's why he painted this picture and now listen, do you know who the father is in the story? It's God. Thank you. It's God. No, it's God. And we must hear this, especially those of us who know the story so well that we know where it's going and we expect it. We need to imagine what would God's disposition be toward, this, so, toward someone who would be so shameful as this young man was. If we know the story too well, we don't know enough to hear it. There he is stuck in this moment thinking about his father and he comes up with a plan to go back. And I want you to see as I read it, if you can pick up on his own sense of what his worth is. In verse 18, he says this, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Can you see the way he sees himself? It's so plain, isn't it? Not worthy to be called your son anymore. He thinks of his relationship with his father and he says in his heart, I've broken it irrevocably. There's no going back from the wrong that I've done. I cannot be his son anymore. The best I can hope for is if I go back, he'll treat me like one of his hired hands. And that means he goes back believing that the last thing he should ever imagine is that God would love him. Maybe he could be treated like a hired hand. Maybe he could get one of those jobs where the people live on the borders of the property, never dreaming that they could go to the father's house. They just get up and work all day like a slave and then return 
again tomorrow morning to the same pattern. That's the best he can hope for. And the reason that's the best that he can hope for is he's internalized this scorecard. But now Jesus is going to show this man and everyone who's tempted to think like he thinks what God is like. Because when he gets up and he begins to go back to the Father, there is something utterly astounding which happens. He leaves the far country behind and he begins to make his way back home, rehearsing his speech. I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. I'm not worthy. Please let me be a hired hand. When he sees off in the distance, across the fields that he should have been working in all those years, his father and his father is looking for him. And now his father sees him and he begins to run toward him. Would you please imagine you don't know what happens? I once told this story to a group of 75 high school students who had nothing to do with church. I told them, I want to teach you about Jesus. They were there to listen. When I got to this point of the story, I asked them, can you imagine what the father did as he ran toward his son? It was one of those hypothetical questions I didn't expect anyone to answer. Grant shouted at the top of his lungs, he killed him. And, and actually, he added an expletive in front of the word killed that I cannot say now, but it made it even more dramatic. <laughs> and what he did in that moment is said what exactly what everyone who was listening to Jesus' story would have expected. It's the only reasonable response given the offense of this young man toward his father. And if we operate according to the system of measuring our value according to performance, it's the only reasonable expectation that any one of us should have before God. But no, that's not what happens in the story. And Jesus tells this surprising picture of God because he wants to unsettle every one of us, every one of us who measure our value before him in the wrong way and therefore can't love ourselves at all. But while he was still far off, Jesus said, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Compassion is the exact opposite of what you would expect, anger and retribution. Instead, he's filled with love. He runs to his son and he embraces him and kisses him. Every single person in that group would have thought, this is absolutely insane. How could Jesus' story ever include this kind of picture? And I mean everyone. The tax collectors and the sinners in that group would think, no, it's far too good to imagine that any father could ever forgive someone like him, like me. Just as every scribe and Pharisee is thinking, no, it's far too wrong that any father should give a son that's treated him that badly in that way. Both groups think this is impossible. You see what Jesus is doing, don't you? Listen, he's trying to say to every one of us, away with the scorecard. He, he's trying to say that to us and he wants us to hear that so that we can be loved by God so that we can love God and then pass God's love onto others. It's the most important thing. And we cannot do that until we receive God's love for us, until we're able to look at ourselves and love this man, this woman that God has made. Then the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That is 100% true. Remember the, thank you. <laughs> do you remember the third thing that the son had planned to say? treat me like a hired hand, he doesn't even have time to get it out of his mouth because the father doesn't even care at all what he says next. He just wants him to know right away that what you've just said, even though it's true according to your measurement, is not true for me. I get that you're not worthy to be called my son. I know that you've sinned more than you even know, but shut your mouth and listen, please. Was that too much? 
<laughs> Is it too much? I think God wants to say to us when we resist his love, just shut up. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Every single detail in Jesus' story about the father's reception of the son says exactly the same thing. Every single bit of it says, I love you. Every texture of it, every act on the part of the father for his son, the ring, the sandals, the robe, the celebration in the calf, all of it is meant to convey exactly the same thing. Yes, I get it that you can't possibly love yourself, but would you please let me love you? I don't care about everything that's behind you. I love you so much. You are with me. I'm so glad. Would please, would please, would please one of you hear this for yourself? The one who comes in here and has all of that Failure behind her or him. Would you please hear it for yourself? This is God's disposition toward you. I love you so much. That is what you need to hear. And those of us who are doing so well, we feel very lovable. We, we think, that, well, this isn't for me. Okay, there's another brother in the story and I'm gonna get to you in a second. But first for the younger one, would you hear this? Jesus says, away with the scorecard. I love you. And, and, and he wants you to receive that so that you can have his love and love yourself and love others. Now, that older brother, you know, he's busy while the younger brother has returned. And this is how Jesus' story develops. The sun is just about to set and this older brother is still at work because that's what you do. And there he is as the sun has gone down. Now he has to stop working. Otherwise, he might have still gone on working because he was good at it. And then he turns and he begins to make his way back to the house. But now he sees the lights and then he hears... <laughs> and he, he asks one of the servants, what's going on back at the house? And the servant has a huge smile on his face. He says... We're having a party because your brother came back. Every time a person goes away from God, it breaks God's heart. Every time. Because God loves every person. And the people who are close to God, also it breaks their heart. And the slave says, he's back. Now immediately the older brother is thinking, wait a minute, but all those things that he did, he's got the scorecard. The slave says, well, let's just go party. He's back because he's not all the things that he did. Let's go. But now, now the brother there, the older brother is standing, the sun is set. Everybody else has gone in to the party. And look at what Jesus says about this older brother. And this is for those of us who have no problem loving ourselves at all. It's verse 28. Then he became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. And in these two sentences, there's everything that the person who is self-assured and confident that they are worthy, everything they need to hear is right in those two sentences. The first, as long as you live like this, you will never celebrate because you will never be able to receive love because every good thing that comes to you, you will experience it as if you deserved it. 
And beneath that kind of assurance will always be the question for you, which is, what if I slip up? Will the love be withdrawn then? Can you see how it's not love? Can you? Do I need to keep going on this one? Because I can't tell if you can see it. Anything the father gives him, he thinks to himself in his heart, well, of course I, I deserve that. And the scribes and Pharisees maybe had fallen into that way because they got confused about what was the most important thing in all 613. They needed to be reminded the most important is love. And then the second thing that's always going to happen for that person is that they're going to keep themselves away from others. And then in that second sentence, we see the heart of God. The father came out and began to plead with him. And what the father says is, for you too, I want you to let the scorecard go. Come in and let's celebrate together. I want you with me too. I want you here. Not because you have done so well, but because you also are my son. He is too. Let's get together. Let's leave that behind us, the scorecard. Let it go. Come and celebrate. Let's join together and be glad. Let's experience the love that, that we can have together as a family. Here is Jesus' way of unsettling the other side of that crowd. There is no one who's excluded from the celebration because they've been so bad. There is no one who's included in the celebration because they've been so good. Did you hear both of those? Jesus says, away with the scorecard. Come and celebrate with me because I've decided to love you. You're mine. Oh, it's not clear yet in this story, but if you read to the end of the Gospel of Luke, this is the most mind-blowing claim that I have ever heard in any religious system. Jesus, who tells the story, is God with us, and he dies for his enemies. That's how much God loves everyone. And so to go on regarding yourself with hate rather than love is to say no to the God who is waiting for you to come in and celebrate with him. And that's what I want to invite you to do, to say yes to God's love so that you can give love back to him and love the people around you. That's what we're gonna deal with in the weeks that are ahead of us, the people that are close to you, loving them well. But now I wanna challenge you to love yourself and not in the wrong way, but in the right way. And I'm gonna give you four bits of guidance to that end. How to love you. Okay, here they are. Number one, and this is for every one of you, wherever you are in faith, this is number one. Identify the scorecard that you use. I've named a few, but for each and every one of us, we'll have our own card that we use to measure whether we're worthy or not. All of us will have this. And I'm gonna tell you, if you're gonna make progress loving you in the right way, it's gonna start by looking at that card that you use. Whether you're a person who has all negative marks in your heart, or even if you're one who has all positive, heart, uh, positive marks, the first thing for you to be a person who loves is to see, what's the card that I'm using? Can some of you already imagine what it is for you? Uh, I ask because, listen, I really want to encourage you to share that with somebody else. The, one of the, the goals in our Connect Group ministry is to put people in situations where they can verbalize what they've always carried inside so that they can grow. And so maybe this is a, a challenge for me at your group this week. Begin now to think, what's the card that I use to measure myself? You need to identify it. You need to say, what is it that makes me feel better about me, that I'm more lovable and worse? And be clear about that in your mind. That's step one. Here, this is step two. You ready for this? I'm gonna challenge you to love yourself. You must let go of the low marks. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter when you do the wrong thing, okay? Do not hear that. It does mean that when it comes to your value, your worth, your ability to be someone who's loved, 
It has nothing to do with your performance, not when it comes to God. He made you and he loves you. And so he invites you right now to see the low marks and let them go altogether, however you've designed them. Even if they're the low marks that you've, you've drafted for yourself because you're a part of a church, let them go. That's not how it works with God. Jesus made it plain. The father runs to the mess and says, I know all about the report. I couldn't care less. I love you. And he embraces and invites into the celebration. So that's the second step. Here's the third step. This is counterintuitive, but I'm also going to tell you, if you want to love you, you must let go of the high marks too. Now, some people have heard this message over and over. You've got to love yourself. And the way to do that is focus on your strengths and keep telling yourself how great you are because of those things. No, that doesn't teach you to love yourself at all. That just puts you deeper over the abyss that you're going to fall into once you slip up on any one of them. Away with the card altogether. What are you proud of? Listen, do your best at it. Work hard. Take pride in the healthy way, in the hard work that you do, but never in such a way that you believe it's the thing that earns you a place in the celebration because then you're going to be all alone in the dark. Let that go too. And here's the fourth challenge. This is a step that you have to take if you're going to love you. It is that you should be kind to yourself. I know this. People who have the hardest time loving themselves are so cruel to themselves. They're good at it. So here, you're going to be kind to you. Grab this card that you got when you came in, would you? The truth about loving yourself. On the back side of this card, there's some small print. It's a very specific challenge that I'm going to give to you. And, and I want you to look at that sometime after we're done here. That's for you this week. Above it, in bold, there's a passage from Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is the sentiment of a poet who has learned to be kind to himself because he looks at him and he does not see his accomplishments. He sees the marks of the creator, God who made him, and he knows that God has made me wonderfully. And you, here's my gift to you. Would you commit this to memory and would you say it as an act of faith every day this week to God? Say, God, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If you can't see it yet, Find someone who's trustworthy and ask them to help you see it because it's true about you. And you need to learn to love yourself if you're gonna love others. Now, the band is up here already because they have a gift for us. It's a song that a father wrote to his daughter. This is a man who's got a 10-year-old uh, girl who he was talking to her in one night. She was crying and he, he asked her why and it, it came out that she didn't like herself. And it was heartbreaking for him as she recounted all the reasons that she wasn't happy with who she was. And then he went off and he wrote this song for her. And, and he wrote it, listen, to help her understand his heart and God's heart for her. And I want you to listen to it as Dave sings, as if it is God himself who is giving his heart to you. Would you do that?
musicians for that, that, that yeah, you guys are so good. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, these are John's words. Someone who Jesus loved and who wanted to pass that love on and who did that because he was able to receive that love. We know love by this, that he laid his life down for us. That's how far God went to love us in Christ. We also ought to lay our lives down for one another. And that means we should love the people around us and we need to begin by accepting God's love for us. Friends, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. God bless and keep you and assure you deep down in your heart that you are his beloved. In the name of Jesus, Amen.